and Clayman Media. You're listening to the We Bear Witness podcast, where we discuss theological truths and cultural influences. Follow us on Spotify or wherever podcasts are streaming. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the We Bear Witness podcast. Dylan's not with me uh, right now. Uh, he's not left for good or anything. We haven't gotten into a, a uh, Lennon and McCartney split or anything, me being McCartney, of course. But he uh, had like gotten real sick and his voice has this Phyllis Diller sort of like uh, Ozzy Osbourne sort of sound, which I thought was cool and would add like a cool context uh, to, the, to the podcast. But he was not for that. And uh, I can't really tell him what to do. But today we are talking about the uh, Asbury Revival. We're talking about the He Gets Us commercial. A couple things. And these, by the way, just to preface you, this is not just me uh, scoffing. Goodness, uh, I feel like these are really sensitive topics. And in hindsight, I'd probably just not touch either of them. Uh, but I've said a few things about them already or written a few things about them for some friends and sort of put them out in their sites. But uh, this, is, this is not skepticism. Um, this is not cynicism. This is what I believe to be just testing things, asking right questions, uh, making sure people respond in biblical ways, making sure that we're still all focused on the sufficiency of Scripture and the life it plays in regeneration. And, uh, and just looking at things from our angle, which when if you haven't made the trip to Asbury, uh, you know, yeah, there are a lot of people I trust making the trip because they just want to know what's going on. There are a lot of people making the trip because they believe it's some kind of portal to the upside down, like Stranger Things, which is not what a revival is at all. Uh, no matter how many people try to hijack it for that agenda, that's that's just wrong. It, it, a revival is based in the word when the preaching of the gospel is clear and mass conversion takes place as people don't want to leave because they've just seen and recognized Jesus. And there are all of these other questions that sort of pop up, like how long could something like this even go in 2023 because it hits TikTok so fast and people make trends out of things so fast. And, uh, and, and a lot of bad stuff will start piling in. Uh, as people attend or join as charlatans or false teachers sort of make their way on the campus. And because, you know, they're not leaving in a panic scream, then, wow, the whole thing just must be for naught. Um, I would love to see God awaken uh, the United Methodist Church, Asbury College, bring good theology, sound theology to the campus. I would love to see local churches filled in that arena. But all of this took place on on one Wednesday, uh, roughly two weeks ago. Um, at 10 a.m. at a chapel service, it's, it's just it's continued. It's con- it's still going um, with with just kind of a, a lot of reports of confession, a lot of reports of repentance. And the way I'm going to approach this with you today, as we discuss sort of uh, what's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, the Asbury revival in Wilmore, Kentucky, is to talk a little bit about what uh, what revival actually is. Uh, there there are biblical definitions. Uh, for this or things that we've taken to understand exactly what a revival is and then what it means in response to these things to uh, test all things and what the Bible means when it it tells us as Christians that this is an okay thing to test things. You don't have to come across as a cynical jerk. You can just test things and you can just ask the right questions and you know, people are going to call you a scoffer and a Pharisee for not joining in on their blind optimism. But blind optimism is not true faith. And so there are some times for attitude adjustments. There are some times for eternal perspectives. There are reminders in this revival uh, or apparent revival. I have taken my buddy Dean and Sarah's position. I wouldn't necessarily call it a revival yet. I think there's a reason why we wouldn't call it a revival yet is because the effects or evidence of revival will happen later. 
uh, and I'm not saying we have to, you know, watchdog everybody's salvation confessions. I just think in terms of whether or not there is a real impact in that area or in that college, you'll see more later. So why comment a bunch now? And, and to be frank and transparent with you, I sort of have been commenting a lot on this, but I really, if you go back and if you have our, our Twitter uh, page, Masta, uh, apparently I, I was going through a Jamaican phase when I created that name. Um, but if, if you look back at that or the We Bear Witness Twitter, you, you'll see like there have been comments, there have been discussions really is what I wanted. Uh, but just sort of warnings too of, of two things I really did not like happening on, on both sides. One, a complete dismissal before you even attended because you heard idiots were there uh, or idiots participated. Everything has going to involve humanity and nothing's going to be like this perfect purity. There are going to be charlatans involved in the conferences we like too. Uh, we just got to be careful to throw the baby out with the bathwater there. Uh, and then there were a lot of people that were like, man, if you disagreed with any of this, if you don't think this is a revival at all, you may not even be a believer. It's like, OK, wow, these are some intense sides going on. And and we shouldn't be allergic to critical thinking in these matters. Like there is there's room for a lot of reactions here. There really is. We, we I think one huge issue in evangelical life is we just really don't understand that two things can happen at the same time without anyone being a dang heresy. Uh, or heretic in the middle of it or committing heresy. Like just relax, understand that, wow, hey, maybe one of these messages in the last two weeks has changed an individual's life. Like they've understood and experienced repentance and they're saved now. Okay. Like, yes, we know it's making its way across TikTok and we know it's going to be used for bad because that's what humans do. But it doesn't mean that what's happening isn't just an awakening in the lives of many there. So I'm going to share two takes with you. Because I haven't gone. I don't know. I haven't been there. I just have run this podcast. I don't I'm, I haven't been to Asbury College. I can't leave the wife and kids and go check this thing out. So I'm going to share a write up from uh, one of my favorite professors, if not my favorite professor out of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Tim Booker, who had a write up on this about a week in. And then Samuel Say has an amazing article that I recommend uh, called Is the Asbury Revival a Real Revival? And he goes into even his own personal experiences um, he, he's a bit more on the doubt side. Timothy Booker, who attended uh, within the first week, had a lot of really good things to say about it. And these are two men I trust. So that's sort of why I'm bringing them to the forefront here. But without wasting any more time, here's one side of sort of the Asbury revival take said by Dr. Timothy Booker, who uh, who I'll call every once in a while and he'll straighten me out and remind me who I am and lovingly and, and between laughter. Uh, convict me greatly <laughs> of my sin. And I'm just grateful for him as a brother. Uh, but he says this, um, he, he actually begins his post uh, with credentials, the, the what he's done. He's, he's a studier of revivals. Uh, he, and, you know, this isn't the first revival that's actually happened at Asbury, uh, at least on the record books. It goes, it goes back to 1970. Uh, I think it's even before that. There's just decades of revivals. There's one in 1995 at Wheaton College that he was a part of. He was part of revival services where something just completely extraordinary uh, was happening. And many were sort of falling on their face in repentance and confession, which, by the way, is the beginning. And that's sort of stepping on his points here. But let me just tell you what Tim Booker said, and uh, you'll be enlightened. And you can go read it for yourself. It's on his Facebook page as well as his Twitter page, I believe. But he says this, the manifest presence of God filled Hughes Auditorium. Hughes Auditorium is right there in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury College. That's where everybody's sort of gathering. In the last two weeks, there have been treks and groups and buses and 
Uh, similar events even happened at Samford. Uh, and now again, one of your first takes might be, well, that, I don't know if that's legitimate because they're probably just sort of copycatting Asbury. Hey guys, real quick, if, if college age students are wanting to gather, sing praises and actually hear the gospel, let's be, let's be okay with that part of it. We don't have to call the thing a revival. We don't have to say that you know, Jesus took his hand and wrote on the wall. Uh, we don't have to do any of that. Um, we don't have to buy into everything and we can definitely have our concerns and we can look at the leadership and the dean and the people leading worship and some of the things that have come out recently that are, give us reasonable, justified causes of concern. And we can still say, okay, good, good. They're inside a church or they're inside a seminary, they're inside a chapel, they're inside a Christian college. And maybe they are hungry for this word because I can tell you right now, the fact is I do believe that the young generation is hungry for authentic depth of the Bible. Uh, every Sunday night, I have the privilege of leading 30 plus young adults in a Bible study with discussion, but really a focus on the word of God clearly and plainly. And, uh, and, we, and we have seen conversion. We have seen dedication. We've seen discipleship. And they're hungry. They're done with all of these ridiculous gimmicks that swept us away for our 30s and our 40s. They're, they're done. They want to be seen. They don't want to be in the dark in the church building anymore. They want to serve. And so the, I, I think that there is generationally a waking up or even an awakening that's happening because of faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we immediately might say, well, I don't think that's happening in Asbury. Okay, maybe it's not. I don't know. I've, I've, I remember the first sermon that was put out didn't have a lot of gospel content in it. I didn't really hear the gospel being delivered. It was just rather emotional. But that's one of a lot of messages. And there are a lot of men that we do trust and people that we do trust who have attended who have said that there has been the gospel presented and people have confessed and repented. So I'm not expecting anyone to have great theology the day they're saved if they've been part of something that has not been exalting Christ. But God will use who he wants to use to make his name known. But what we do need to remember, the other side of that coin, is there is a sufficiency of Scripture. And so we want to be very careful as we navigate here and just very thankful, but also very careful. Be thankful, be careful as we approach concepts and topics of revival. And you'll see that even bleed into our He Gets Us commercial conversation later in the podcast. But the, to continue on, sorry, I cut Timothy Booker off. He said, the manifest presence of God filled Hughes Auditorium. I experienced that same overwhelming sense of God's presence each day and night during the 1955 Wheaton revival. So he's, he's or no, I'm sorry, 1955, 1995. Dr. Booker is not that old. If he hears this, I'm in big trouble. He goes on to say the leadership there did a magnificent job of balancing freedom and order. That's a huge part within that first week. Remember, this is just within the first seven days. He said there wasn't chaos. Uh, there was freedom and order and there was passion, uh, but there was not um, everyone grabbing a mic and jibber jabbering and, you know, flailing. Uh, he's, uh, he says as one um he was a, he was part of the faculty and staff at Wheaton Wheaton College in 1995, and he says that's a real responsibility. So he's right about that, uh, which is good. That's the first week analysis. And number three, he says, how do we know if what we think might be a revival is a genuine work of God? And then he goes on because remember he is a uh, revival expert. He said one unmistakable sign will be repentance. So J. Edwin Orr, the great historian of revival, once remarked that was that we really don't understand what we are praying for when we pray for revival. Uh, and, and honestly, that's another charge in and of itself. How many churches are actually praying for this to happen in our church? How many people are scared of what they can't explain completely or, 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 or the real dedication and discipleship? Um, I just think we need to discuss those lines. But he says, uh, he says what we were praying for when we were praying for revival, we think we are praying for ecstasy 
And yes, joy is a byproduct of revival, but true revival, and this is key, doesn't begin in ecstasy. It begins with agony. It doesn't begin with laughter, but with tears. The Bible teaching, he says, this afternoon, and several of the testimonies focused on repentance, not just feeling sorry for our sin, but with the Lord's help, seeking to remove it as far as we can from our lives. He said they said that those sermons were being preached, and I, I do trust Dr. Booker. Okay, so that's that's sort of it's so facto. There are gospel messages being declared there. They might be rare. Uh, it might not be the norm, uh, but they're present. Right. He said related to a deeper work of the spirit. I mentioned to my church recently that I haven't heard much talk among evangelicals in recent years about dying to self. But he said he heard a lot about dying to self and living for Christ uh, at uh, in within the messages. He also said the worship leaders did what worship leaders should do. They were not performers, but led us to the throne of grace in worship. Uh, he said that people were passionate and they were worshiping with exuberance. And even though he's a Baptist, he doesn't necessarily do that by his temperament or tribe, but he's okay with brothers and sisters that do. And I think that's within reason, within reverence and all. I think that's okay. I don't think we need to be allergic to passion because it might mess up our tie. Let's just relax a little bit uh, without being careless, without being foolish and without believing everything or conflating blind optimism with true faith. Let's stop being ridiculous and saying that just because people have critiques or concerns or warnings, they're all tied up fuddy-duddies, legalists and Pharisees. That's, that's sort of stupid when, the whole, when there are tons of scriptures in the New Testament that tell us false teachers and false teachings exist. Have your wits about you. Put on the armor of God and have your wits about you. Test all things. I mean, we, we see that. Uh, in the first letter to Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.21, uh, when Paul says, but test everything. And he says, hold fast what is good. And I think that's a good lesson for this revival uh, situation. Uh, I shouldn't probably keep saying revival because I said I don't, I wouldn't say it's an actual revival yet because time will tell. But I'm certainly not saying it isn't. I guess that's my, my thing, at least within the first week. I think there's another story happening the more people attend this revival. That, that rightfully anger us, that are that are justified in making this thing more and more sort of uh, create skepticism, more and more, let's back away, it's probably not still happening. People are getting involved and it's sort of messing everything up. Uh, and it's not just they're coming to faith, they're just turning it into a trend. I, I do think some of that stuff needs to be said. But as we go back to Dr. Booker's first week analysis, he, he has a word of exhortation to all who at that time were still considering to journey to Wilmore. He said, Luke 7, we read the account of a woman washing Jesus's feet with her tears and anointing them with perfume. The Pharisee who was there was indignant at what he saw as a waste of valuable perfume in his eyes. Jesus wasn't worth such extravagant worship. He said, the passage reminds us that in every worship setting, there will be three groups. The one being worshiped, which is the Lord, the worshipers and spectators. How can you tell if you are a spectator and not a worship because you will be worshiper because you will be critical of how other people are worshiping without realizing you aren't worshiping at all. And this is his personal testimony. He says, for years, my prayer when I enter a sanctuary has been, Lord, help me today to be a worshiper and not a spectator. And he said, I whispered that prayer as I entered Hughes Auditorium this afternoon and God graciously answered. He was worshiping with people. And this is this is in his visit. And he goes, he goes, one final caution throughout the history of revivals. Critics have pointed to some type of excess accompanying a revival and tried to argue that excess discredited the entire revival moment and meant it wasn't truly a work of God. Jonathan Edwards answered that criticism during the first great awakening by using a helpful phrase in the main, what is at the heart of the movement? What is happening in the main? There will always be excess on the fringe due to overly excited and not yet completely sanctified human beings. 
and or to satanic opposition. But what is taking place in the main, that is a helpful grid as we evaluate moments like what is taking place at Asbury. I thought that was a wise, helpful word uh, without necessarily condoning everything that's going on, uh, which I think is near impossibility these days. It's just not the world we live in, really, where that's possible, or at least it shouldn't be possible. And, and we shouldn't be afraid of critical thinking. We shouldn't be afraid of asking the right questions or asking the tough questions. Um, but, but so many of us are, and that, that's a real problem. And, and they, we, we react in that fear of questioning and critique with people who just have a real issue with Debbie Downers. And, and look, full transparency, the reason I, I called Dr. Booker after I read that is because my first few takes were kind of like my buddy Dean and Sarah's. Like we were just sitting there thinking, okay, great. It's a long concert. They're singing Great Are You Lord four days in a row. Anyone can do that. And, and we, probably, we feel a little guilty of it now because I just don't ever want to shortchange when there's true conversion. And I'm not the sheriff of that. I think you can react to things like that in several ways. You can be like neighborhood watch, you can be a good policeman, or you can be like martial law, militia. And and that's just not in our wheelhouse. That's not what we're necessarily called to do. But at the same time, hold the line theologically, uh, talk about the things that matter, keep the main thing the main thing. This, this isn't a compromise. This isn't us you know, saying we shouldn't care, just let it be. Some good happens, so everything should be permissible. We're, we're speaking in way too many absolutes here. Uh, overwhelming black and white for people who consider themselves critical thinkers. So, so we just need to be open uh, to the power of the Holy Spirit working through the faithful teaching and preaching of the gospel. So my main concern, as well as Samuel says, was is the gospel being preached. So if you read his article, uh, it was incredibly well written. He begins with his personal testimony, sort of not seeing the same thing as Timothy Booker did because he came in the second week of the revival. And again, like I said, the more people that come into something like this, the more diluted something like this could get because people are coming with all these other intentions and be honest, it's just human nature to be a part of something exciting. It doesn't even have to be for Jesus. Jesus doesn't even have to be the reason they went. They just wanted to be a part of something. And so this is what Sam said. He said, I actually became a Christian during a revival at a youth retreat after a weekend of preaching prophecies, prayers, and casting out demons. Most of the people at the youth retreat accepted the altar call, repeated the sinner's prayer, and made professions of faith in Christ. So these are all things he's sort of not for these days as he's grown in his theology, not necessarily the existence of demons, but just the way in which it was done makes him uncomfortable because it's not a lot of Bible, not a lot of knowledge of the word, but it's just a lot of sensationalism. And, and so he's seen firsthand how emphasis on revivals instead of repentance harms so many is what he says. And he goes, it's, it's with that in mind, the authority of the Bible, that I hesitate to call what is happening at Asbury University a revival. And I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I don't see a problem with the hesitance of calling what is happening revival. I don't think that makes you a scoffer. You, you can still pray for revival. You can still desire revival. You can still hope all of your people show up to church tomorrow and confess and, and repent and, and want to follow Christ because they love Jesus and or on Sunday. And, and that, that hesitancy or hesitancy is, is what Sam said is offensive to people who, who, and that's the part of the issue that I wanted to touch on is, and why are we, why are we condoning the conversations between us and people who don't think like us? Why are we allowing them to basically say you're wrong for hesitance? You're wrong for hesitance. Come on. First John 4, 1 through 2 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there's just a lot of people acting like there are no false prophets. 
There's a lot of people out there acting like there are no false teachings and anything with Jesus's name on it passes as acceptable. And that's not right. It's, it's not righteous. It's not holy. Um, we, we, people who have even just provided hesitance, just wanted more questions to what was going on, um, have been accused of being joyless, doubting Thomas's. And he goes on to say, um, the Asbury Bible, he goes on to say that it started at 10 a.m. chapel service on Wednesday, you know, a couple weeks ago. And it went from 20 to 200 students pretty fast. And, and there was even an email that sort of instigated that. But again, I'm not going to give that too much homage. And and, I'll, and Sam knows that. But like an email, I've sent emails out before. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have 14 days of <laughs> students showing up at chapel service. So whether or not it was instigated by that. To me, it's just kind of irrelevant. And there's just a lot of people who have given reports on both sides of things to be leery about in the second week of the revival. People who have been participating. I know Greg Locke showed up and Todd Bentley showed up and uh, they had said how much they enjoyed it. And there were a lot of people that got online and said, well, if these two enjoyed it, then, you know, strike three. Well, I, I get that. But these two guys are liars. Like, we should mark and avoid them. I just don't take any part of their testimony as valid. I mean, they could have walked in and, and if they, if they are the kind of people who find no reason to scoff about anything and they accept everything, which Greg Locke isn't, but Todd Bentley may be just because he's kind of a peddler. Um, he could go into Steve Lawson's sermon and walk out and go, wow, that was so powerful. And these same people aren't going to say, Steve, what's up? A false teacher said he enjoyed your sermon. What's going on, man? I mean, it's just a bad litmus test to take the testimony of people you don't trust and say whether or not it's a real revival. That, that to me doesn't make any sense. And it's really not, it's not sufficiency of scripture. It's not going to the word to describe it. It's, it's going because you just don't like the people involved. And, and that's tough for me. So I, I didn't really get that take a whole lot. Um, and, and, and what I love about Sam's article is he reminds people that God saved him in spite of heretical series of sermons by a prosperity gospel pastor. Uh, a female pastor. If God can save a wretch like me in that chaotic environment, I don't doubt that he can save anyone anywhere. I mean, so he's saying that like theology was bad, but the basic gospel got in there. Oh, he says this. He said that uh, even the president of the seminary, Asbury Seminary, um, and especially the pastor whose sermon apparently started the revival, Zach Meerkrebs, I hope I'm saying that right. It's Meerkrebs said they're not ready to call what's happening at the school a revival. I remember Sam's articles on the second week. And yesterday, Mir Krebs actually said no one will know it's a real revival until months from now. I agree with that. I, Of course that's true. People don't levitate and, and just and appear white when they're saved and fly into the air. You know, after centuries of Christianity influencing our culture, Sam says, many of us have now accepted that not only do we live in a post-Christian culture, we live in an anti-Christian culture. And all of that is true. And yet we can't provide some hesitance. We, we're not even there. We're not even in the area code. We can't just say, hey, can we just be reminded what Christian revival is? Revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. So, so the, part of the excitement or the emotive aspect of this that so many of us have trouble dealing with because we just we're just all about the pages and I'm all about the pages. I love the pages. If it's not the pages, I really don't want part of it. But there's a, an emotion that is illicit that elicits from reading the pages. I weep when I read the pages. 
It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church. It's a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth and righteousness. Historically, revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening their eyes to the truth in a fresh new way. This is what it is, and it happens in a mass context, typically. Uh, it, It involves fresh starts. It breaks the charm and power of the world. All the blind can see. And and we have this USA history, U.S. history, the first revival called First Great Awakening, which produced an upsurge of devotion among Protestants in the 1730s and 40s. And it carved a permanent mark on American religion. And, And here's my take. Because of how things are now, if that were to happen today, and people were just to break away from from the sin, dry ritual and rote ceremony, and find deep emotional needs for their relationship with Christ, we would have in within a week we would have the same reasons to doubt, just like we are doubting what ha- what's happening in Asbury. And I'm not again, I'm not fighting for it to be a revival. I don't have a take on whether or not it's a revival yet, because time will tell. And you can hate on that all you want. I I don't care. That's that's the position that you're sort of forced to take logically is you can be happy if people are being saved and you can be happy about that. Just like when you're happy when the pastor in your own County goes 10 got saved at my worship service. I'm just as I err on the side of rejoicing. If people are confessing and repentant and hate their sin and love Jesus and are singing about it and want to be there, I am error on the side of rejoicing, but I don't do it or I try not to be a fool while I do it to believe that everything about it is just perfect and it's not going to be tainted and just everything that involves it. And if you scoff at all, you are a heretic. That's crazy. That is crazy. So revival in many respects replicates the believer's experience when he or she is saved, is initiated when God's word is open and the person is prompted by the Holy Spirit where they are then awakened or loved and seen as they are chosen before the foundations of the, of the earth and then the Holy Spirit draws back the veil the world has cast over the truth, and that person sees it. And now why would they not want to celebrate? And they're college kids. And my, one of my main questions is, I mean, these kids are going to work still. Maybe some have quit their jobs, but there's just an alter, alternating groups. And it's it's popular, and it's gotten probably more cheesy, and it's probably at this point gotten more trendy. But who knows? I don't know. I'm not there. I'm just assuming the more and more people come in, they're probably coming in for the experience rather than for the Jesus. And I think that's that's part of why people are rightfully and justifiably dismayed or taken back uh, by what's happening in a large, massive movement. But but I think it does paint a picture of what's happening uh, all over the place in that age group. And, and I will speak to that. I do think it gives us a good avenue to basically say, hey, I told you this generation is done with the quick salvations, the shallow preaching. Um the pat your own back. They want to know why do I follow Jesus Christ? Why do I, why should I love the Lord? And if we don't have answers for them, then we're letting them down. So I, so I think that is really where we need to look because they're getting the wrong Jesus from every outlet. And that brings us not only from the Asbury college conversation, which, you know, we'll touch on a little later if it calls for it. I'm not desperate to talk about it. I just hope people are getting saved and uh, if it's, you know, the whole thing's a sham, let's say the whole thing's just this weird sham, another, you know, sort of full blown, uh, you know, I hate to say charismatic, but the whole full blown sensational play, 
let's just trust some of the people that have gone to say, you know, if a few people or a lot of people or maybe many people are getting saved, we will know it and we will know the fruit of it. And uh, we just should be erring on the side of rejoicing while also erring on the side of wisdom, finding that balance in both. The fact uh, the matter is, I don't know who watched the Super Bowl, but you started seeing those He Gets Us commercials. And uh, <laughs> I've come to really hate the term uh, Theo bros. Uh, but that's what they call basically anyone who's, who's just mad at everything all the time. And, uh, I, you know, Twitter is without tone or context, so you can easily be called that and, and just kind of earn that title if you feel like you're just putting out like, I critique 10 things today. I probably am coming across as one of those. But Theo Bro somewhere proudly, just people who want to hold the line theologically. But when He Gets Us came out, a lot of people commented on it. Uh, he Gets Us, by the way, is a set of commercials or really a, an initiative that's backed by millions of dollars. One of the sponsors includes Hobby Lobby. But if you look at the bio on the website, this is how it starts. This is why there's a lot of real good reasons why we should be addressing the problems with He Gets Us because we shouldn't be interested in anything that's only displaying half the gospel or not the gospel at all, but the word Jesus. Because Jesus is already um, is already misrepresented so often in our culture that that, that is a worthy fight um, to make sure that the right biblical Jesus and for is being presented to the world. And for us to do that, we have to know the right biblical Jesus ourselves. But here's a little bit about what its agenda says on its website. You'll find it under the agenda page. It says, how did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love, peace and kindness spend his life defending the poor and the marginalized, a man who even forgave his killers while they executed him unjustly, whose life inspired a radical movement that is still impacting the world thousands of years later how did this man's story become associated with hatred and oppression for so many people? Well, there's your reach. And how might we all discover the promise of the love his story represents? Those are the questions at the heart of he gets us. And he says, uh, he says, we've done a lot of homework on our culture. We researched how people feel about each other and what they think about Jesus and Christianity. We've connected with thousands of people of various faith traditions and those who claim no religion. He says, we spoke to all kinds of people, different backgrounds, beliefs, and yes, political affiliations. And this is what we've learned from politics to sexuality and religion. So many of us feel like our values, beliefs, and identities are under attack by the ideological others around us. Um, many perceive those who differ with them on issues of justice, dignity, and humanity as not just wrong or misguided, but also as evil. It really has some of the same elements as the and campaign, where they try to find this mutual ground without really calling truth, truth. Uh, but it carries on. It says, we often see these others as closed-minded, selfish, and hypocritical. And if we're honest, many of us respond in kind, which means in the same way. It says many have relegated Jesus from the world's greatest love story to just another tactic used to intensify our or deep our deep cultural divisions. And so they're they're inventing this enemy, uh, and they're just basically saying, "But see us here, and he gets us. We're just about the truth. We're just about the real Jesus. Getting to the nitty gritty of it." And then he go, they go, "Jesus has represented the ultimate good that humankind is capable of aspiring to." As that makes no sense. So, so why have I read six paragraphs so far and we've not talked about the hypostatic union? Jesus is God. Jesus has represented the ultimate good that humankind is capable of aspiring to. So while Christ-likeness is the goal, none of us on this side of heaven, until we are at the moment of glorification, and even then not God, capable of being perfect. So that's just a weird connotation. Um, it goes on to say, whether it's hypocrisy and discrimination in the church, 
Our scandals, both real and perceived among religious leaders or the polarization of our politics, many have relegated Jesus from the world's greatest love story uh, to just another tactic used to intensify our deep culture. I've read that part already. It says our agenda is to rediscover the love story of Jesus, Christians, non-Christians, and everybody in between, all of us. Where is the gospel in this thing? How can we, that is our agenda, he gets us, to move beyond the mess of our current cultural moment to a place where all of us are invited to rediscover the love story of Jesus. It says, when we look at the biography of Jesus through modern lens to find new relevance and often overlooked moments and themes from his life, we see a deep admiration for the man that Jesus was. There's been nothing so far about Jesus being God, which is sort of, and there's nothing on the entire agenda page about Jesus being God. So here are seven problems. The fact that Jesus gets us strips from the context of his identity, which is meaningless. If you're stripping God from Jesus, it doesn't matter uh, that he understands what it's like to be human. It doesn't matter even a little bit. He is both God and man, or he is a wise teacher, and we should treat him as an old sage uh, instructor and uh, be, on, be on with our lives. Number two, uh, Jesus is, again, in that agenda presented as an example, not a savior. And uh, the campaign reinforces the problematic idea that Jesus's followers have Jesus all wrong. Um, so there's no there's no scripture. It goes on to say the campaign reinforces what culture wants to believe about Jesus while leaving out what culture doesn't want to believe. Exactly. Uh, these seven problems uh, were done uh, very incredibly well by Natasha Crane. Um just the basic understanding the gospel's missing from he gets us. They said that there was a culture war. They used, they used their social justice droppings, worldview differences. The campaign stated goals about inspiration, not a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is just sort of moralistic therapeutic deism at its worst. And a lot of people were like, yay, Jesus's name is out there. Well, that happens with Latter-day Saints too. And no one was flipping out about that. So there's part of the full circle here, back to the Asbury revival. It's not bad to read things and know what you're talking about and hold everything against the light of Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to be some dead inside fuddy-duddy, you know, thinking that every bit of emotion means weakness. We just <laughs> get over ourselves and onto the mission, man. Um, the problem with he gets us as well as uh, the, the enemies walking into the Asbury revival is they, they, they're on charge to lead people away from the gospel. So people who know the gospel need to be more wise. And we need to understand that we have a responsibility in the things that we say. And I can guarantee you now camps or tribalists will dismiss my takes because I'm leaving room for the good to be seen while at the same time not treating Asbury like it's that upside down wormhole from Stranger Things. Uh, but I want to I be encouraged and I want to be encouraging. Um, I, I want to answer those guys and say, can we just say wow at 14 days of worship when most of us are just trying to keep are the majority of our church awake during our 52 minute sermon. So it's good and holy. Um, I mean, and you're like, well, that's not real worship. It's not true worship. No, you, you have not been, but you can say no true or real worship has gone on at all. We just got to be careful is all I'm saying. Um, disregard those pitching a fit whenever anything is a critique or you're right about what we should be you know, a little concerned with and just use your brain and use the Bible. But, but in the same breath, don't enjoy chastising what for many could be a moment where they receive Christ. We just don't know. But I think, I think it's fine, like Sam said, to be hesitant to call it revival. I think that's smart. And I think Dr. Tim was right to say what I felt was worship and the gospel was being preached at the time I was there. 
which means it has at least once or twice or three times been preached in 14 days. So I sort of just think of this whole thing as when someone says, you know, 79 got saved at my men's ministry event. I'm always like, wow, that's a lot of people to come forward in confession. I hope to God that the local churches in Asbury and around that area in Wilmore are filled to the brim with young adults in their new membership classes and ready to serve and ready to be discipled, not ready just to have emotive experiences where that, that anything could do. A Coldplay concert could do that for 14 days. If it's just emotion, if it's just being a part of something, if it's just raising one's hands. But if there's something real going on within that time frame, man, may, may good theology flood it. May the spirit of God uh, change lives. I'm perfectly okay and content with hoping for the best without feeling like I'm losing my theological card. So we just have to be very careful the way we do things and, and the way we say things, while at the same time, um, not feeling bad that we're being chastised with people who have very little capacity for any critical thinking involved in theology. And they just need to understand that we have a responsibility to know the word well so we know what's not the word. And uh, be careful because at the beginning of this, at the beginning of every revival, and at the beginning of every evangel evangelical conversation about Jesus, commercial or otherwise, at the center of all of it is the word of God, the infallible, perfect word of God. Let's 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 do the same thing. Let's not just chase the feeling. Zach Terry said, let's not chase the feeling attached to these things. Uh, that's not what this is about. And that's not the prescription. The prescription is do what you've been doing. Disciple and get people to make disciples who have been disciples. Pray fervently without ceasing. Instruct your church. Lead your church in the word of God. Bring conviction to the preaching, bring truth to the preaching and see God work in marriages and see God work in parenting and see God work in people who want to know Jesus Christ. Stay the course, hold the line and get over yourself as we see God work in a myriad of ways we may not perfectly be able to understand. I love you guys and thank you for listening. Uh, went a little longer today. Maybe Clay will clean that up. We'd love to see you next time on We Bear Witness. Thanks. Clayman Medium.